there, I'm Mike. Some of you know me from the Twisted Cape. Some of you know me because, in a minute, I'm going to need a sentimental man or woman to pump me up. But, regardless of how you know me, you know I love comics, and that's what we talk about on this podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mike's Big Stack. Oh, hell yeah, my thickies. Welcome to the show, everyone. Recording, as always, at Thickness Central. We're hitting Season 3, Episode 8 of the show, and on the next episode, we'll be back to the regular weekly goodness. As always, we start out with the city shoutouts. Starting with Mount Juliet, Tennessee. Thanks so much for checking out the show. Ashburn, Virginia, always coming back, always making me feel good. Dublin, Ireland, I love seeing you guys on the City Shoutouts. Just thank you so much. We really greatly appreciate you. Another longtime standout, Richardson, Texas. Thank you. We appreciate you down in, in Big Tex. Gotta love it. Oakland, California, thanks so much for checking out the show all the way out on the West Coast. Knoxville, Tennessee, appreciate you guys coming back over and over again. Love to see it. And finally, San Jose, California, that SoCal vibes. Thanks so much, everyone, for checking out the show and coming back week after week. And now we'll hop on over to Mike's Thickometer. Oh, yeah, Mike's Thickometer. So thick, I call it Thickless Cage. This week clocks in at a 7 out of 10. That's pretty good thickness. I, I actually prefer it right about that thick. Anymore, it gets to be a little too much for me personally. I mean, I can take it, but there's no guarantees, you know? Anyway, this week features 14 books, and it has a Marvel advantage this week, so we're going to go ahead and start with those Marvel books, starting with Avengers number 58. Three words, Samurai Ghost Rider. I gave this a 4.75 out of 5. You guys, this issue was so unexpectedly fun. All right, so let's get after it. Cap and Nighthawk are wandering around Edo-era Japan, and come across Samurai Ghost Rider and fight alongside him against those coming for his power, which is Mephisto's forces. He's possibly the coolest badass I've seen in a long time. He gives some encouragement to Nighthawk before just disappearing. There's a great line about how he usually does that, making him officially Marvel's Batman. He joins Echo and Namor and cuts a fucking boat effortlessly in half while Jean and Thor start a long overdue conversation about Mjolnir. The Avengers end up regrouping, and Ghost Rider points them towards something called the Genesis Point, which he calls a prehistoric fulcrum that must be defended at all costs, which seems to reference 1 million BC Avengers. He drops plenty of cryptic hints, and then Mephisto shows up, and the Avengers race off through time after him. But not before Nighthawk and the Samurai have a brief, very respectful conversation at the end. Pros are how much of this I loved. It moved the overall narrative, it included the entire team and all of their issues, I love the art, and Samurai Ghost Rider, holy shit, I feel like that's a book that I absolutely need now. Cons are that despite my love of the issue being so high, I felt like it took a long time for this book overall to find purpose again, which it really did again near the end of this issue. Next up we have a look at Defenders number 1 of 5. Doctor Strange assembles his defenders. I gave this a three and a half out of five. Although Steven is dead, he casts a spell to put together a new team of defenders via his final spell. 
He starts with Blue Marvel, who is a good amount of the reason why I picked up this book. Blue Marvel receives a box, and inside that box he finds Eternity's Mask, among other items. Adam isn't really interested in doing this, but comes across a card that concerns him, and then he gets an immediate visit from America Chavez, looking up to tie up some loose ends from her miniseries. The card that concerned Adam was, in fact, of America. They get joined by Loki, who is presenting as female now, and Tala, and then America immediately wallops Loki directly in the face. Finally, Tigra is brought to the team from a walk in the park she was taking. There's a neutral zone breach, and they tumble away. Loki swaps to male, and then the team sees Eternity, who sends the team outside of itself, where they come across the Beyonder. Pros are that, as far as first issues go, this is pretty good. I like the team, the makeup, the highly Kirby-influenced art. Cons are the timeline. Tiger's hanging out with Moon Knight, and it's kind of weird to see her just disappear, and I know she's serving story purposes elsewhere right now. Now we have a look at Iron Man number 21, Tony versus a weapons trafficker. I gave this a 2.5 out of 5. Tony goes on a flight and it's attacked. He suits up and as he fights the guy, he disables Tony's armor, the plane, and then jumps out of the plane. Tony goes after him and his leg gets injured bad enough to need a pretty serious tourniquet once he lands. The guy reveals himself to be switchback as he tricks Tony and his depleted armor into a deadfall. Tony turns the tide, he gets out of it, and then returns to NYC where he meets up with Rhodey. Turns out Vic Martinelli, who had been trying to reach Tony, is dead now. Pros are how the mystery of the Ten Rings gets a little deeper here, and how resourceful Tony is. He's definitely a long way from the first issue of this run. Cons are that this feels more like a filler issue than anything else, but the last two pages definitely set something up. Next up, we have a look at Avengers X-Men Eternals Judgment Day number one. I'm only going to call this Axe from now on. This absolute bananas event gets started. I gave this a 4.25 out of 5. Cersei spends most of her time in this issue with the Avengers, as she does get captured in the start of this issue. Humans are busy railing against the mutants for not sharing resurrection, which is fucked up if you think about how mutants have been treated by humans over the last 60 years. Destiny warns Kurt and Raven that the Eternals are coming to kill them all, so Kurt goes to Arako to warn them. The Avengers grill Cersei, but she's unaware of Druig's plans. Speaking of Druig, he seeks and obtains the go-ahead to wage war on the mutants. He unleashes Uranus, his grandfather, on the mutants for one hour. He additionally talks through his plans with Moira, who also has an axe to grind. The attack is launched on Krakoa both physically and psychically as they target the five who are necessary for resurrection. This was just a diversion because Uranus was set loose on Arako, causing untold devastation, but the biggest piece is that the gates are absolutely gone now. Druig sends a message worldwide saying that they will protect humanity, but they'll be raising giant Eternals for their cause. Meanwhile, in Avengers Mountain, the Avengers discover that Cersei and friends have broken with the other Eternals. Makari and Ajax show up and bring Sinister, and they propose raising the Celestial that is Avengers Mountain to help them in battle. Pros are how jam-packed this was, and how absolutely nuts it was as a starting point. There were real consequences that will be felt throughout here. Cons are that the Avengers feel out of place. Maybe that'll change, but I almost don't get why they're here. Now we have a look at Knights of X number 4. The team moves forward after last issue's sacrifice. I gave this a 2.5 out of 5. 
So it turns out Gambit is dead dead. The team fully regroups in, in the Siege Perilous, along with Arthur and his forces. They're all tested in various ways, be it about their nature, what they desire, or who they think they are. They fight their way back to each other, and we finally get a kiss between Betsy and Rachel, and I gotta say that it was so overdue. Meanwhile, Shogo and Saturnine are headed to the Siege Perilous as a mysterious figure, Absalon Mercator, sets them up to finish this whole thing by battle. Pros are that we finally get that kiss between Rachel and Betsy. Cons for me are how muddy and disconnected this book feels from everything else going on with the Earthbound and Arachobound mutants. Hopefully that changes soon. Now we have a look at Moon Knight, Black, White, and Blood number three. Three more stories in Black, White, and Red. I gave this a three and a half out of five. The three stories in focus here on Jake, Moon Knight and Khonshu rescuing a girl from a cult, and Moon Knight in space. If I were to rank them, it's a bit of a flip. I like them in order. The one focusing on Jake, then Mooney and Khonshu, and then Moon Knight in space. I really enjoyed the coy nature of Jake's story. He's playing some bank robbers as he talks to Moon Knight about how he's going to stop them. It's very on brand. The next story was Khonshu manipulating Mark into doing his bidding. Also very on brand. The final story was all about mining the moon. I just didn't like it as much. The pros were the first two stories, and specifically the art. The first one was very distinct, and I wouldn't mind more one-shots that looked like that. The second story had a very retro flair to it. Cons are the third story for me this week. They tried to copy Alessandro's style, and it wasn't a story that spoke to me as it should have. Now we have a look at Savage Spider-Man number 5, the finale. I gave this a 3.25 out of 5. Spidey hyper-processes things in this issue, where he essentially moves at the speed of thought for the majority of the issue. He spends most of the time talking to a mad thinker in the mind space while his body is tearing through the Immaculatum. He eventually decides to open up his mind to emotions and it changes everything for him. He decides to renounce being hyper-logical and becomes who he should be again. And fittingly, after being non-stop and savage, he lays down and takes a nap. Pros are that overall, this series was fun. The action, plus the story woven in, was fun. Set largely against Zemo, it was awesome. And man, do you hate him as a villain at times. By at times, I mean all the time. Because he's a dick. He's, a, he's an absolute dick. And the art was strong at times, but at other times it was just okay for some reason. Cons for me are the Immaculatum. I feel like they weren't really worthy villains as the series developed. Finally, here on the Marvel side, we have a look at She-Hulk number five. This issue is centered on Jen and Jack as it has been. I gave this a four out of five. We find out that there's a superhuman who attacks Jen and Jack for seemingly no reason, but it turns out to be just a misunderstanding. Turns out it's a big beefy guy named Mark, and what we find out later is his wife, who explains to Jen that not all superhumans are super. There's a good deal of character development in this book, starting with Jen struggling with who she is, both when she's big and green and when she's not. She's struggling with telling Jack about the events of Avengers Disassembled, which is like 20 years ago at this point. Jack, meanwhile, is talking about possibly disappearing back to his family's mansion in Connecticut. There's some romantic tension here, but it's getting downplayed just a little. Jen goes to a park at the end and sees Mark, the superhuman from earlier, and his wife, April, and discovers that in addition to being his wife, April is also Mark's caretaker, since he seems to have some kind of mental issues. Pros are that it's such a character-driven book, and that it gives a different kind of richness that I'm not always used to. Superhero comics are so often about huge conflicts, and not 
about being lost as a person and figuring that part out. So that's kind of refreshing. Cons are that we need to get away from a will they won't they situation and not just romantically. The internet exists, so it's only a matter of time before Jack finds out about Disassembled, so rather it come from a friend than not. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and then hit these DC books, baby! Stick around. Hello, I'm Anthony. And I'm Dr. Issues. And we're the hosts of Capes on the Couch, the podcast where comics get counseling. Superheroes don't always get to go home happy. That's where we come in. We offer psychiatric and mental health evaluation of comic book characters. We also chat with some of your favorite creators. Al Ewing. Erica Schultz. Gail Simone. Philip Kennedy Johnson. Chris Claremont. About their work on comics. So check out all our episodes at capesonthecouch.com and follow us at Capes on the Couch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hashtag Because Comics. Hey everybody, Sam here from The Twisted Cape. If you haven't already done so, be sure to check out The Twisted Cape's Tee Public page, which we have live right now for you to purchase any and all of your clothing needs with Twisted Cape logos on them. We got shirts, socks, maybe. Wow. We got other shirts with hoods on them, and they have longer sleeves. So warm. We got everything you could ever want with Twisted Cape logos on them. So, again, please be sure to check out the Twisted Cape's Tee Public page. Check out the link in the description and be sure to pick up your favorite stuff right now. Thanks, everybody. And now, back to Mike's Thick Stack. Yeah, we're back. I'm going to go ahead and jump into these DC books. Make sure you buy some stuff from our Tee Public and support our friends. And, uh, you know, keep that whole thing rolling. All right, starting with Batman the Night, number 7 of 10, Bruce hangs with Zatara and Zatanna. I gave this a 4 out of 5. Bruce spends a fair amount of time training with Zatara and reconnecting with Zatanna. They remark about how good Bruce is at sleight of hand and other magic tricks when they find a dead body. Bruce then abruptly discovers that actual magic is real. Zatara tries to warn Bruce because he's so good at so many things that he isn't really prepared for the cost of magic. While doing research, Bruce sees a book about speaking to the dead, which is implied that he steals. Z puts glyphs on Bruce, and he tries to fight the demon from earlier until Zatara shows up and dispatches the demon. Zatanna and Bruce share a tender goodbye later on, and then Bruce gives the book he stole back to Zatara, seeing how desperate he was to hear his parents again, but he finds solace in getting Zatara to tell him about his parents. Pros are how self-contained this issue was and how it made Bruce acutely aware of his actions. He could easily be a great magician, but would immediately use it wrong, and he realizes that. Cons are that Zatanna would be so irresponsible with magic, but we know that these characters are much younger than the ones that we know and love. Now we have a look at Batman Superman World's Finest number 5. Devil Neza is defeated. Now, where's Robin? I gave this a 3.25 out of 5. The world's finest learns about how to imprison Devil Neza, and that something happened to Robin before Neza takes over Clark. It goes bad quickly when he takes over the Doom Patrol as well, except for Robot Man, who breaks his hold on Clark. Superman goes to the fortress and returns to imprison him in the Phantom Zone. They learn about what happened to Robin as Neza adapts to the Phantom Zone and starts to break free. Clark picks up Devil Neza, flies him into the prison, and seals them both inside the prison. Batman notices that the Phantom Zone projector is missing, and they pull Clark out of it with Negative Man's assistance. Then they discuss how to find Robin. 
there's an epilogue for Batman vs. Robin with Damien at Naze's tomb. Pros are how action-packed this is. There's so much going on with this issue from an action standpoint. It was so fun to read and look at. Really good execution. Cons are how this does nothing to convince me that Dick is in trouble. Also, I'm not sure that I love reviving a villain for a crossover. I'm just kind of done. Now we have a look at Dark Crisis. Young Justice number two of six. Lots of Cassie. I gave this a three out of five. Past Cassie helps defeat Mighty Endowed, and then there's a battle with Tora, which really isn't a focus. It kind of actually even happens in the background. Cassie doesn't know anyone that Tim mentions, which is weird to him when he talks about John and Damien and so on and so forth. Present day Cassie goes to Sissy to help find the boys, and she's happy to have given up superheroes. She agrees to help, but she says this is the last thing that she will ever do for Young Justice. Meanwhile, the boys end up on the watchtower and get separated by their quote-unquote mentors, and here's where things start to get a little weird. Superman and Cassie try to convince Connor to take the cape, while Wally and Cassie try to convince Bart to become the next Flash. Cassie and Batman try to get Tim to take over as Batman eventually, and get back with Steph after he becomes that Batman. Tim replies that he's dating Bernard, and Batman calls his bisexuality a phase, and Tim's thought is, fucking what? The boys get back together and discuss what happened, and Connor wants to stay a little bit. Meanwhile, Red Volcano fights present-day Cass, and Red Tornado helps save her. The world with the boys goes insane. The earth cracks open, zombies come out, and then all of a sudden, for no reason, they're surrounded by water, and then when they get back to Happy Harbor, they're greeted by Deathstroke, Lex, and Captain Boomerang standing over an unconscious Cassie. Pros are I love how uncomfortable I feel when it comes to where the boys actually are. Hints are dropped, but I'll save my theories for next issue. Cons really center on the queer phobia from this not real version of Batman. We all know Batman only really cares about justice and not who his quote-unquote kids date. We don't have to cross this particular line. Now we have a look at DC vs. Vampires All Out War number one of six. Lots of vampire action in black, white, and red fashion. I gave this a 3.75 out of 5. Blue Devil, sleeper favorite DC character uh, for me, Deathstroke, and Damage fly to the Alps and attempt to resurrect Batman in a Lazarus pit. It goes wrong when Vampire Azrael shows up and things get botched. Vampires swarm them and Blue Devil dies and so presumably does damage. Azrael gets thrown into the Lazarus pit and then comes back to being human which is later confirmed by Man Bat and gets brought into the fold. Captain Adam is behaving as a son underground while Booster is a farmer now. Damage shows up and he's definitely a vampire now. Slade gets reamed by the council for trying to bring Bruce back but it gets worse for them here. Damage attacks Captain Adam, and he basically goes nuclear. There's a second story that focuses on Batgirl killing a bunch of vampire GCPD cops to basically put Gordon at rest. Pro start with the art. This would absolutely supplant Future State if it weren't ongoing. Also, this style has a way of lending itself to violence. Cons are how they don't communicate. There's no way Damage should have been able to get back into the underground without people being aware that he didn't come home. Now we have a look at Flash number 784, a dark crisis tie-in where we've seemingly found Barry. I gave this a 3.75 out of 5. We spend some time with Max and Jesse helping out Mad Max Barry, which is hilarious to me. Meanwhile, Jai and Irie find Night Flash, 
a Batman-Flash combo. Really disappointed, he didn't deputize them immediately. When they lose their device, they are helped by a mysterious figure. Wally finds actual Barry, but Barry thinks he's Reverse Flash and really tries to beat the shit out of him. Meanwhile, Wallace goes to this world's Wally and gets invited to dinner and he starts to feel like he belongs. Be careful there, kid. Bros are the different berries and how much fun it is. It's honestly hilarious. Cons are how none of the berries are developed and it also feels like there's no real threat here. Finally, here on the DC side, we have Nightwing number 94. Blockbuster finds his mole. I gave this a 4.25 out of 5. Commissioner McLean gets tipped by Melinda that he's been given up and that he's got to get the spreadsheets and get out of town. She then tells Dick, who immediately apprehends him on the way to the airport, and obtains the files. Maggie Sawyer and Dan Turpin get to Bloodhaven as police heads now. Blockbuster isn't happy about the new appointees and goes to Melinda's mom's in a vague threat. Blockbuster thinks Electrocutioner is his rat, but she calls Dick immediately as she tries to set Electrocutioner free, and then he zaps her in the back. And Melinda is in real danger now that Blockbuster knows she's the mole. Pros are how Melinda gets some much-needed love. Developing Dick Grayson's long-lost sister is a good thing. But don't ignore Dick altogether, and it didn't. Cons are how savvy Melinda actually seems at times, like with her mom when they whisper, I guess it was Korean, back and forth before she leaves. And then how she seems to turn around and fully trust actual criminals. It's just a little weird, but hey, we're here for the drama, right? Alright, here we go with the weekly ranking. We have 14 books here overall. And we're going to do a 7 and 7 breakdown this week, starting with number 1, Avengers number 58. At 2, we had Axe, Judgment Day number 1. Then at 3, we had Nightwing number 94. Then at 4, we had Batman the Night number 7. At 5, we had She-Hulk number 5. And at 6, we had Flash number 784, followed by 7, DC vs. Vampires, All Out War number 1. In the bottom half, we have Defenders Beyond number 1 at 8. At 9, we have Moon Knight Black, White, and Blood, number 3. At 10, we had Savage Spider-Man, number 5. At 11, we had Batman Superman, World's Finest, number 5. At 12, we had Dark Crisis, Young Justice, number 2. At 13, we had Iron Man, number 21. And finally, at 14, we had Knights of X, number 4. As we start to wrap up, if you want to be on the show, hit us up on Twitter at SpiderMike29 or at the Twisted Cape. Looking ahead to next week, I'm looking forward to reading... From Marvel, Amazing Spider-Man number 900, Strange number 4, and The Variants number 2. From DC, I'm looking forward to reading Robin number 16, Detective Comics number 1062, a new creative team, and Action Comics number 1045. Follow us on all socials, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, Instagram, all at the Twisted Cape, no spaces, and a link is in the show notes. We do a weekly show on YouTube, and we stream on Twitch at least once a week. As far as all the others, if you follow us, we'll follow you in return. If you really like us and our shows, feel free to grab some of our merch from TeePublic, which has a link in the show notes. Finally, feel free to shoot us feedback on this show to thetwistedcape at gmail.com and use the subject line MTS. Thanks for tuning in. So, until next time, it's about damn time. Stay safe, wear a mask, please get that vaccine, and most importantly, stay twisted. Fix that.